Hello and welcome to episode 44 of BachCast. It's been a little bit of time since our last uh, podcast, and so I want to welcome you back, and I am excited about this episode. This is one I've been uh, planning to do for a while and had, was somewhat apprehensive about doing it because, uh, believe it or not, uh, there's a lot of research that goes into producing some of these episodes and even though I am many times kind of speaking off the cuff from my experience, focusing on favorite recordings of the pieces, the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, I like to be prepared to point something out interesting about the music at the same time. And this particular piece that we're going to focus on in this episode is one I don't have a, a huge experience with in terms of length of time. Uh, as you may already have realized if you've been listening to this podcast, there are very popular pieces by Bach, such as his Brandenburg Concertos, that I have already addressed in earlier episodes. And those are pieces that I've known for many, many, many years um, because they're easily accessible. They're popular in terms of modern-day standards. For instance, you can find lots of recordings of Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. You can find lots of recordings of his six partitas for keyboard. Um, but this is one of those pieces that may or may not be something that is um, familiar to you. It certainly wasn't to me. Uh, and as I have gotten to know and appreciate the music of Bach, um, I've you, you can't ignore his cantatas, the vocal music. And for me, in my, the culture that I grew up in, um, listening to the vocal music, appreciating the vocal music, understanding the vocal music, um, was, was a bigger challenge. Number one, it has a stigma, I think, to it. Um, Listening to a violin concerto in the background is one thing, but having people sing and people have people sing in a different language, especially if you're not growing up in a culture where that is sort of typical or normal or accepted, uh, can make approaching some of this music more difficult. If you're not part of a religious tradition that still uses this music as part of its celebrations, it may be difficult to get into this music. Now, that all said... This is one of Bach's more popular cantatas. And so uh, if you know, let's say, a handful of Bach cantatas, you may be familiar with this one, BWV 80. Um, Einfestburg in Unsergat. Um, a mighty fortress is our God as a translation. This is a big cantata. It is in eight movements. Um, it, I don't really have a timing here for it, but, um, you know, it, it's a fairly decent-sized piece. It's a fairly uh, rigorous piece in terms of the musical material. Uh, the basic idea is, if you were to look at the Bach catalog, he, uh, this particular hymn, uh, composed originally by Martin Luther, um, the founder of Bach's sect of Christianity, Lutheranism, 
uh, is a pretty big deal. It's it's a it's it's a major um, it's a major thing that Bach grapples with in multiple ways, and so it's not surprising that when we look at the catalog that he has set this hymn tune multiple times. So if we look at the organ works, for instance, we're going to find this embedded. Uh, you're going to recognize uh, the tune. And that's kind of a fun way, actually, to, if you recognize some of these vocal titles uh, amongst the vocal works and in uh, the organ works especially, you're like, gosh, uh, okay, here's six settings of Christlag and Todesbanden, the famous cantatas BWV number four, but you're going to find organ pieces that take that hymn tune. And just to compare and listen to them and see, you know, can I hear that tune? Can I hear how Bach has adapted it and um, used it? So there's a major theme here. Now, Bach does not quote it in every single movement here. However, you're going to hear the, the theme come time and time again. Because this is a big work, I'm not going to concentrate on the whole piece. I'm not going to try to dissect it or give you, you know, a mini dissertation on this cantata. Um, that would be unfair to me for to, to do because I don't feel it's in my wheelhouse to go over every single detail. And I'm sure that I can point you to some resources if you want to know more about the piece in detail. But I want my, my take on this piece and what I've, uh, the reason I've, chosen to highlight it, and the reason I wanted to include it in Bachcast um, is because it spoke to me. And it didn't speak to me in a particularly religious way. I, I, I don't really share a whole lot about me myself. I like to focus in on the music, but um, I, I come back, I come from a, uh, a Christian tradition However, I'm not a, a currently practicing Christian. I don't. I don't go to church. Uh, I don't. I don't get ter- terribly involved in what the text is saying, and that is is really a no no if you're trying to get into this music because uh, Bach does some really interesting things with how he sets text, uh, and you really can't perform this music without studying the text and the context of what the words are saying. Um, and with that said, I'm listening to this music and it causes me to have an emotional reaction. And that alone for me is, is interesting enough for me to want to know a little bit more about the piece. Um, and I'm not saying that, oh, I heard it and it had a catchy tune and I wanted to hear it again. Uh, and you may have been in, in that boat before where you, where you hear something like, oh, that's that's a concerto or a sonata that I've never heard before. And I kind of like it. And you like it so much that you want to hear multiple versions of it. And you might collect a few. And it, it could be Bach. It could be Chopin. It could be, you know, it could be something else. It could be a jazz standard that you really like. And you want to hear the, the instrumental version. You want to hear several vocal versions because the music just speaks to you. This music spoke to me in a, in a unique way, not in a way where I just smile and said, yeah, I like it, or it's well-written, or it's um, it's attractive to me. And trust me, there's a lot of box music that, that 
I have that reaction too. That's why I like Bach. But it was a really profound emotional reaction. Um, listening to this music, and I'm be honest, I've turned it up louder than I probably should. Got headphones on. Um, I'm taking a walk, or I'm sitting in front of the computer, or I'm in front of the stereo, and I just can't help but to turn it up. And listening to the music causes tears to well up. And when that happens, you have to ask the question, why? Why is this music touching me in such a way? Is there something, is there some mystery uh, in the music that's, you know, that's meant to, meant to force you to have this reaction? So, so let's step back and imagine that you're a, a parishioner. You're in church. It's 1740. Uh, Bach is the, you know, the music director at your church. And uh, coming up next is one of his cantatas. You, of course, know the tune. You're going to recognize it. You're going to hear all the creative ways that Bach has uh, applied it to this, this new work. And, and I'm wondering, as you're sitting there with a more connection, a better connection to the, to, the, to the context of the text and the text itself than I would have because I'm an English speaker. I, I don't know German. Um, so as I'm hearing this, I'm not reacting to the text. I'm not reacting to uh, a sermon that happened before. I don't really know what's going on with specifics at the time the music is playing or I'm hearing the music, experiencing the music, yet do I have an emotional reaction? And to me, as someone who has studied music, who has studied music composition, that, that's very interesting. You know, Was this music designed to elicit an emotional reaction? Or is that my special connection to the music? Is that unique to me? And so I put that out there because I'm going to play some music from this cantata that that um, really has affected me. And it's not a one-time thing. It's not a particular mood I'm in. Uh, I can be in a variety of moods when I listen to this. And I literally do not want to do anything but listen to it. And I want nothing to do except uh, to let that music affect me and... I give it my full attention, and time after time, I have this emotional reaction. And so then I began to ask the question, is it the performance? Can I change the performance and have the reaction? And indeed, uh, at least with the two versions that I'm going to highlight in this um, podcast, the reaction happens. And so it, it's very interesting. Um, I opened the, the podcast with just a little clip uh, this is from the, the fourth movement of the cantata. The first movement, which we'll play in just a moment, is a, it's a big work. It's, um, it takes around at least five minutes to perform. Um, it's, a, it's a piece for orchestra and chorus. And we might call it like a, 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 a choral fantasia. When I, when I hear that term, I always think of Beethoven's big choral fantasia, which I've never been a real big fan of. Um, and I am a fan of some of Beethoven's music. Um, 
But that one never really affected me. <laughs> so when I hear the, that term, choral fantasia, I, I get this sort of, eh. Um, but it, it's, it's, it, we should think of that term uh, to mean something that's uh, very complex in sort of an open form. When we look at box cantatas, typically we're dealing with three major types of forms. We're looking at the chorale, which we see a lot at the end of a cantata. And a chorale setting is typically a, a four, could be a five or even six part vocal setting. And it's typically what, if you are a churchgoer or have experience in a, in a Christian church, you might call it the hymn. Uh, it's written in four-part harmony usually, um, and Bach is famous for writing a number of these. In fact, you can go out and, and buy an inexpensive copy of Bach's 300-some chorales, just them by themselves. And uh, if you're a music student, you've likely had those or had access to them because they are rich in following all the rules of voice leading, and they're well done, and it's just rich, pure harmony and... Um, it was a tradition to be used in the church. And Bach includes these in his cantatas. And so if we look at uh, the last movement, the uh, the eighth movement in the cantata, Bach gives us a chorale uh, setting with that hymn tune in it. And so, so that's one form that we find in this cantata. The other are arias. And arias, we might almost think of, of something from like an opera. And even though Bach never wrote operas, uh, we have to wonder, was he exposed to them? Did he have an interest in writing operas? But his, his arias tend to be uh, some, some of the more interesting aspects of his cantatas because many of them are so well written. Many of them... Um, might be a solo aria, but have an instrumental line that goes along with it, uh, giving a richness of color. Um, we have some of that here. Uh, Bach writes uh, three arias, um, I guess, technically, in this one. Uh, we have the fourth movement, which we opened with, is an aria for soprano. We also have a... Uh, a duet aria that precedes that final chorale for alto and tenor. Uh, the bass participates in another form that Bach uses in his cantatas, uh, which we also might borrow, say is borrowed from uh, opera, uh, the recitative. Um, this is typically sort of a almost spoken um style. Uh, typically, it's really effective at getting out a lot of text, especially text that may not uh, follow uh, any kind of rhythmic pattern. And it sort of connects movements together. Um, and we could imagine uh, different kinds of art forms where there's, there's acting involved. And it's basically musical dialogue. And so Bach uses that. But the chorale fantasia, which is is different, um, in that you sort of have the elements of the full choir, but you also have just a lot of more interesting things going on. 
um, that opens this piece. And it's, it's a big piece in itself. And it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. So we're going to take a, a listen to that. We're going to take a listen just for kicks uh, to the final chorale. And this will present for you, um, for your ears at least, uh, the main chorale tune, uh, Ein Festeberg, East Unsergat. Um, so you have a reference for when we hear that theme uh, in other movements. This performance, along with the, the little piece I used for the intro, is from the uh, cantata series by the English Baroque soloist, directed by John Elliott Gardner. This comes from uh, volume 47 in their Bach Pilgrimage uh, collection, which was recorded uh, in 2000. So a couple things about that, uh, what you just heard. There, the form of, of this piece, we, we get um, a musical form called the stanza. The stanza, basically, the, the musical material repeats, the, the text changes. And so you sort of get this opening line. It repeats musically, and then we go into a, a B section where new musical material uh, is presented uh, along with the text. And, and that that stanzic dichotomy uh, is carried in other aspects of this uh, cantata. Stylistically, and I'll I don't want to re- keep repeating this, but the Elliot, uh, John Elliot Gardner version of this is what I would call very full blooded. Um, and some of his cantata performances, if you go across their collection are like this. Uh, it's not unique to this particular cantata, but this is probably one of the most um, uh, ripe examples where this is like, the chorus is almost near strained. The, the, some of the tempos are, are pushed. It is intense music. And several times I question whether, you know, is, is this... Uh, John Elliott Gardner trying to present the music that Bach would want to hear, or was this the music that Bach did hear? And when you start to ask those questions, you 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 bring up other points, which is um, at what point in musical history would Bach have heard this piece like this? And there are, there are some problems with this piece in particular. We know it had a history. We knew that we know that it was later. Uh, arranged by one of his sons, and with with the musical material left behind, we can't be certain exactly what an original version would have looked like versus an arranged version, and which parts were all pure Johann Sebastian Bach, and what might have been added by, uh, I believe, it was his son Willem Friedemann who uh, ended up editing this and performing it later. Uh, but nevertheless, 
when your sons are reusing some of your material, um, even if it's early material, that that is probably a very interesting uh, sign for us to know that this was um, either well received or well regarded during the time, uh, and we're left with what we what we have. And despite my reservations about whether this style that John Elliot Gardner presents in the in the cantata pilgrimage is uh, as historically accurate, and those reservations are purely a stylistic feeling I have. I just I just question whether the the performers in Box Day would have number one been this polished, and number two would they have been this this sort of riled up. Um, I don't know. Uh, but it certainly makes for interesting music making. I, I really like the performance that that he presents. Um, and I'll stop, ta- I'll stop talking at this point and want you to hear this, this big chorale fantasia, the way this piece opens. And we'll talk about what makes it kind of really kind of cool. Uh, this version, again, will be from the English Baroque Soloists. And this was released on their own label. Um, uh, they had some issues. I believe that the whole recording project was going to be on Deutsche Grammophon, and then that didn't work out. So they, um, the English Broke Soloists, created their own label, and this came out on that. And after releasing each one of these uh, releases by themselves, or I believe they came out in pairs, actually, because I, I bought some of those, um, and then I held off and they released the whole collection. And that to me was a, a great way to have a reference set of box cantatas. So this once again is directed by John Elliott Gardner. This is the opening uh, choral or chorale fantasia from cantata number 80. what's going on? You, you heard the chorale, right? Kind of homogenous. Everybody has sort of similar rhythms. In, in, a, in Bach chorale settings, typically it's very homorhythmic. There are some exceptions to that, but it, it typically is the whole group is together. In this one, we have independent voices. There is no surviving like opening symphonia or like, you know, like an orchestral introduction. It, it almost begins, and this may be because music is lost, we don't know, but it, it almost begins just like in the middle of something that's already started. And it's this, it's really an old form. If you look at box motets, which are look backwards in musical history, um, there's nothing new about presenting a fugue with voices. That's, you know, that's not, Bach didn't invent that. But that's what he starts with. 
here's this chorale tune set as a fugue, and it's it's intense. Um, we have an independent um, instrumental part that comes in, and then after all those voices sort of come together, then then a more significant orchestral presence is made. Um, one of the controversies about this is whether the, the brass that we hear in that performance really belong. And uh, I would also say the use of a sort of a full sounding organ was, is that uh, appropriate or is that, um, is that germane to earlier versions of the work? Um, but whether, whether that's a reflection of a late version of the work or not, it's interesting. It, it, definitely adds something unique to the sound of a Bach cantata that uh, is not always present in his other examples, uh, many of which that we have. But this opening is, is despite that scoring, is just very interesting. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bold way to start a piece. Uh, there is little doubt in my mind that, that people during the time that this was written would have recognized that tune right away. They would have recognized the text, and it's just sort of all-out kind of ballsy. I mean, we've got this very energetic piece of music, um, which is, you know, optimistic, um, and it's there's this richness to it. You can't escape uh, feeling that richness with this particular piece when those instruments come in and it's not a simple line, right? It's not just window dressing. It's not just what would be maybe an old practice, which is to double the voices with the instruments, but there's independent lines. And this music isn't simple. This would take rehearsal. This is, uh, this is a bold statement by Bach. Um, and we see that time and time again with his cantatas of him taking some bold new steps. I'm going to go in and give you uh, a taste. Um, and this is, again, John Elliott Gardner, English Baroque soloist. I Trust me, I'll, I'll give you another example here in just a moment. This is the second movement, and this is happens to be my favorite. Uh, listed here, it's, it's, it's called an aria with, cor with chorale. Um, and what that means basically is, is one of the voices is again going to sing the chorale tune and another one is sort of going to be on top of it. It'll be instruments, it'll be rich. Uh, and to me, it's quite virtuosic. Um, it's, it starts the chills in my spine just about how well written it is, how it works together, and just how, how beautiful it is. Thank you. 
What I'm struck by in this uh, piece is how modern it sounds. And I know that's a byproduct. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't been transported back to Bach's time. I'm not in Leipzig. I'm not listening to this being performed in you know, one of his churches. I'm hearing it in 2017 on equipment that you know, nobody in Bach's world could have ever imagined existing uh, through a recording that was made, what, 17 years ago? Uh, 16 or 17 years ago, um, and I'm hearing it. And yes, there is a modernity to the way we're experiencing this today. But the music just sounds, and I've, I'm, I'm really familiar with a lot of Baroque music, but this this particular piece, it just starts with that that rhythmically interesting, driving string music. And then on top, we get this, uh, the, the bass line, I mean, speaking here of the, the bass vocal, not the actual bass line of the music, but, but that vocal line, which is uh, challenging, right? Especially at this speed. Uh, and then we have this almost angelic soprano come into a company giving us that familiar music again uh, and doing it in a very relaxed way, right? And together with that energetic instrumental, the obviously more angular uh, vocal line for the bass, and then this sort of smooth, familiar soprano line. It just comes together as something quite sublime. But I can't, it, it can't, I can't get out of my mind how modern it must have sounded to Bach's congregation. And I don't mean modern in a way that, uh, in a gallant way or a, a like a on the precipice of a classical style. Uh, it, it just it's just kind of, again, I think Bach is showing off his genius. And I, I, would, uh, I would wager to say, based on his music like this, why he offended people at the time, why everybody wasn't in love with his music, his church music. Uh, you had some very sort of maybe old-fashioned type of folks running things, and he comes with these new bold ideas um, and they're like, what is, what is this? They didn't know what to do with box genius. And I have an example I want to play for you. This has nothing to do with this piece, except that when I listen to it, it really reminds me of this piece. This is a piece I discovered a number of years ago. I, I only have one version of it. It's performed by a popular harpsichordist, I think, Andreas Steyer. And um, you're going to hear me typing as I as I as I pull this up, and prepare. This came on a, a recording. I believe it came out in 1988, so it's showing its age. Uh, it came on the Deutsche Harmonia Mundi label, and the title of the album was Clavier Fantasian, uh, basically Fantasias for keyboard, and I tried to collect them together. Included on this recording uh, 
are a couple big works by Bach, including the chromatic Fantasia in Fugue in D minor, uh, BBV 903. But this particular piece is simply titled Fantasy in C minor, uh, BBV 921. It lasts all but uh, three minutes and 10 seconds. It is one heck of a piece, and I, I don't know the history behind it. I don't know if it's, if it's a dubious work ascribed to Bach. I don't know if it's incomplete, but it has remained a favorite of mine. And when I really started getting into this cantata, I'm like, wow, there's this modern streak going through it. And I thought, what else do I know by Bach that has sort of a modern streak? And when I recently paired it with this again, uh, this Fantasia, uh, there was that rhythmic fatality that I believe is present in this cantata. Uh, the other thing is harmony. There are some really wacky harmonies in this piece that I, I really don't know in any other piece by Bach off the top of my head. Uh, I'm not going to say that there's nothing out there, but there's some weird stuff in here, and it, I think it's worth hearing and comparing to get to the, my point, which is um, Bach was really pushing some boundaries in this cantata uh, in terms of in terms of uh, his brand of modernity, uh, which was just trying out some things within a in a context that he was familiar with. He had his tonal world. He had his uh, the expectations for what instrumentalists and vocalists could do. But in terms of harmony, especially in terms of rhythm, um, see what you make of this. Uh, be interested if you guys have comments about this particular piece, uh, either in connection with the cantata or separate from it. So this is, uh, I'm going to play the whole thing for you. Fantasia in C minor, B2V 921.
Wasn't that piece wild? Um, the ending is sort of leaves you hanging, like what comes afterwards. Uh, I just imagine this very youthful uh, composer, keyboardist who has one hell of a dream, sits down and says, hey, uh, where can I take some of these ideas? And some of those harmonies, they sound like, you know, ninth or 11th chords in there, just wow. Um, just out of this world. Uh, I really can't think of anything by Bach um, quite like that. And so with that in context, especially that rhythmic, um, those dotted rhythms and everything in there, uh, it reminds me a little bit of some of the rhythmic uh, experimentation that was happening at the beginning of the Baroque period. I think I've spoken of this before, but um, the idea of repeated fast figures in music, uh, especially when we take a look at um, early Italian Baroque music, uh, it was referred to uh, as, as something that Claudio Monteverdi called his, his the second practice, this stile concitato, this sort of, um, uh, it was a style that uh, was really meant to refer to anger or war or conflict. Um, and it was adopted by composers, uh, sometimes in a very direct way and sometimes in an idiomatic way, and probably it lost its context um, by the time we get to Bach. But you're going to hear it. Uh, and so the next example I have uh, from the cantata uh, is... Um, a different performance this time. Um, we're going to hear this this recording camp more recently. This is a 2015 publication. Um, it comes out on the Etc. label. This is Musica Amphian, along with the Gesualdo Consort Amsterdam. Um, this includes a couple organ pieces uh, in it, sort of alongside the cantata, but this cantata... Um, is directed by Peter Jan Belder.
So when I think about what Bach is doing here, it's not unlike what he might do in a setting for keyboard, like one of those organ pieces that adopts the hymn tune. Now, the hymn tune is very obviously heard, but what this instrumental music is just this richness, right? And there's something about it, again, that just reeks of modernity. Um, it's it's a little more difficult in this rendition to hear what I was referring to as that stile concitato, that da 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 that, that, re, that repeated note thing. Um, and I think this rendition is sort of a, it's a nice one. I, I really, I, I go to this recording a lot. I think the, um, the vocals, I think the, the basic sound quality of this recording is really well done. And I think the vocalists do an excellent job. Uh, it is not as, as hot-blooded, shall I say, as the John Elliott Gardner version. Uh, but I really appreciate getting to know this cantata with this recording in hand. And in this particular movement, um, in which we have, uh, once again, the chorus, but this really st strongly written... Um, involved uh, instrumental accompaniment. Um, it's done well, but I think you need to hear a comparison to sort of get at, again, uh, what's so unique about it in terms of box music. This is unusual <laughs> uh, in what I know of, of box cantatas and uh, his style of church music. That's, that's a lot of awesome. I, I can't help but just be beaming and smiling when I hear that music. It is so refreshing. It is. I just can't imagine what it would have sounded like if it was performed like that, uh, what the reactions would have been to a Leipzig audience in church. Um, it's, it's, it's celebratory. It's... Um, it's joyous, it's optimistic, uh, which we expect the text to underscore those, those, those values. Um, but that performance really, uh, and that's, we went back to John Elliott Gardner there, that performance really, um, I think, points to um, Bach's genius of, of trying some new and different things and... Uh, He's using techniques which are tried and true, 
but you know, in in a way that's just kind of extraordinary. I want to go back to, to finish this episode and let you just hear a little bit more of the uh, the second recording. I'm going to go back to the second movement. And if you remember, the second movement was that duet for soprano and bass. And the, uh, the hymn tune is carried by the instruments. Um, and just let you hear sort of a different sound world for this music. And again, one of those movements that, that really uh, makes, makes me uh, happy inside um, to be able to experience um, joy through this music. And I also want you to reflect on what an incredible thing it is that that musicians, including the composer Johann Sebastian Bach, um, who lived so many years ago, we have, we have you know, humankind is, is what it is. We don't live for hundreds of years, but we were left this music. We were left uh, some clues about how it was performed. We were left sketchy clues about how it might have been performed in terms of different versions of it. Um, and, and yet in the capable hands of musicians like the ones I've been sharing with you today, um, something so old and something so uh, even far removed from its original context, um, being music for worship, can still move us in at least for me, some profound ways. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, exploring this particular cantata with some sound bites, and I hope I've exposed you to two performances that if you haven't heard them or not familiar with them, that you might check them out. Uh, I think they're both excellent for, for different reasons. And um, with that, I want to thank you for listening, as ever. Um, and stay tuned in the future for future editions of BachCast. I'm your host, John Hendren, and if you would like to listen to more BachCast, you can find more episodes uh, on my website at bieberfan.org. That's spelled B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G.